Hi friends, Gerald Law here. Welcome to the Love Lake Norman podcast. Love Lake Norman is a church in Cornelius, North Carolina, whose mission is to help people find and follow Jesus. You're about to hear a message that will be helpful and hopeful. Our goal is to encourage you to take the next step in your faith. Wherever you are, we want you to know that God has a plan and a purpose for you. Thanks for spending time with us today. We hope you enjoy this message. We are beginning a brand new series today called The Success Trap. And here's why we're doing this series. We will often do a message series focused on issues that are connected to struggle and brokenness or feeling empty or feeling maybe purposeless and with very, very good reason. There's something in us that recognizes that we're, we're always falling short. We hit a wall, a relationship fails uh, or it falls apart, a business deal will crumble, you're having a problem with one of your kids. Those things are the reality. None of us are living perfect lives. Even if we like to pretend that we are uh, living perfect lives on the surface, And so we talk often about how to view these struggles in light of God's grace and his mercy and his plan for you and for me. Because the truth is, until you center your life on God and the relationship available to you through Jesus Christ, you will continue to struggle. You'll continue to struggle to find meaning and you'll have a hard time finding your purpose. When life is hard, there are temptations all around to fall into places that are even further away from God. But what about when life is going well? What about when it seems, at least from the outside looking in and maybe from the inside looking out, like you've got it all together. When you're hitting all of your marks or you're surpassing them, your career is is taking off or at least it's pointing at what you hope is the right direction. You've already been successful, but that next level of success that you're searching for is right up ahead. It's so close that you can almost taste it. What about those times? Or perhaps you're more toward the end of your career and uh, you've been, from most people's viewpoints, successful. You've been successful. Maybe you haven't done everything you thought was possible yet, but you've climbed the ladder, you've made a lot of money, you have the house, you have the cars, maybe even the boat and the career that you dreamed of, all of those things together. When life is hard and you're struggling, there are things that pull you away from your purpose, that pull you away from God. There are things that do that. But when you're feeling the effects of success, well, it can lead to a different kind of problem. One that is much more subtle and much more insidious. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with being successful. We are called to be the best that we can be at whatever it is that we do. If you are a Jesus follower, you're especially called to use your gifts as wisely as you can. You are to do whatever you have in front of you as if you were doing it for Jesus himself. That's what we are called to do. In fact, the Apostle Paul recognized this and he wrote about it uh, to the church, uh, the, the Colossian church. Here's what he said. He said, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's from Colossians 3.17. And it's true. Everything we put our hand to, we are to give our absolute best for because it honors God when we do. Meaningful work 
can be a deeply spiritual thing. Striving to be successful at your job or at school or in your marriage, with your, with your kids, in your home, at, at dance or the sport that you play. Those are all honorable things. But there's a darker side to all of this. One that I think is rarely talked about. The pursuit of success has a way of getting a grip on you. Sometimes so tightly that what you thought would bring you ultimate freedom becomes your ultimate prison. Success is fleeting, but significance lasts. So how do you move from success to significance? That's what this series, The Success Trap, is all about. We're gonna talk about what it means to be truly successful, how worldly success, it can be useful to the kingdom of God, and also how it can be a snare that can damage us if we are not wise. So we're gonna talk about how to move from a life of striving for outward success to a life of inward and outward significance. So for today's message, I just wanna tell you three stories. Just three stories today. This story first that I'm gonna tell you was found in the magazine called Leadership Journal. It was about a 20th century billionaire named Howard Hughes. Here's what it said. All he ever really wanted in life was more. He wanted more money, and so he parlayed inherited wealth into a billion dollar pile of assets. He wanted more fame, so he broke into the Hollywood scene and soon became a filmmaker and a star. He wanted more sensual pleasures, and so he paid handsome sums to indulge his every sexual urge. He wanted more thrills, so he designed and built and piloted the fastest aircraft in the world. He wanted more power, so he secretly dealt political favors so skillfully that two U.S. presidents became his pawns. All he ever wanted was more. He was absolutely convinced that more would bring him true satisfaction. Unfortunately, history shows otherwise. He concluded his life emaciated, colorless, sunken chest, fingernails in grotesque, inches long corkscrews, rotting black teeth, tumors, innumerable needle marks from his drug addiction. Howard Hughes died believing the myth of more. He died a billionaire junkie, insane by all reasonable standards. Hughes died with a $2 billion estate. He didn't, by the way, take any of it with him. He just had a sad ending to a selfish life. Now, that is in some ways the most extreme of examples, Howard Hughes, but his pursuit of money and power and influence isn't as far away from us as we would like to think. If not in results, then at least in terms of the darker places in our hearts that long for the same things that he achieved. What, what you see in this story is someone so concerned with the now, with the experience, so wrapped up in himself, and so taken over by this massive wealth that he, he never thought about his future. He never thought about it. And it seemed that he didn't think about anybody else either. Jesus tells a story about a guy on his way to becoming 
somebody kind of like Howard Hughes. He was teaching one day, Jesus was outside and a crowd of people had gathered around him to hear what he had to say. And there was some back and forth with Jesus in that crowd. And, and honestly, the back and forth with people happened pretty often where people would fire questions at him and he would answer. And so somebody in the crowd says to him, teacher, tell me uh, about this situation. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, in the middle of Jesus' teaching, this guy asked him to step in and mediate a financial dispute within his family about who should get an inheritance. And the standard of the day said that it was this. If there were two brothers in a family, the oldest would get two-thirds of the inheritance and the youngest would get one-third of the inheritance. So this guy didn't ask Jesus to, to come in. He didn't ask him to come hear both sides and come make it right, come make the right judgment. He just wanted him to take his side against his brother. Jesus, as usual, sees through this man's request and he refuses. And then he says to all of them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, the idea of the word he uses at the beginning of that sentence is guard yourselves, guard yourselves. And it's a very, very strong form of that word. The implication of that word is that we are all under attack from greed. It's coming for us. It's not passive. It's aggressively coming at us and it's dangerous. And we need to do whatever we can to protect ourselves from it. It's like an invading army is sitting outside the gates of our life, trying to find a way to get in. And he makes the point that he will illustrate in a minute in a story. He says, life doesn't consist of great possessions. Here's how one commentator on the book of Luke said it. He said, great possessions are generally accompanied with pride, idleness, and luxury. And these are the greatest enemies to salvation. It's not that having possessions is bad. It's not that success is bad. Jesus is not making those points. He is saying it's how you view success and the things that come with it, especially as it connects with your most important possession, your soul. And so from this interaction with a guy in the crowd, Jesus continues and it says this, he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So clearly this man has uh, soil that was rich and, and good for growing crops. My dad grew up on a farm and I grew up hearing a lot of stories about his days in the farm. And there's one thing that I know about farming, really one thing I know, the only thing I know is hard work. You can have great soil, but that's just a starting point, and that's what this guy had. It takes a huge amount of effort to farm the land, to till, to plant, to water, to weed, and to create the right situation for a great harvest. And this man had apparently done all of that, and it happened. It was all going as he had planned. His, his hopes and his dreams of a life of abundance were right at his fingertips. And so he asks a question, what shall I do? What shall I do? You ever, you ever had the dream of, what will I do if I get rich? Of course you have, like everybody has had that dream. If you're like me, you typically would answer it like this. You know, it would be, gosh, it'd be amazing. I would, I would buy a house at the beach. I would buy a house in the mountains. I would join the fanciest country club in town. I would vacation where I want, when I want. No one will tell me what to do and I won't have anything to worry 
about. I won't be anxious about anything anymore. Now, it's naive to think that way, though, because people of wealth, of means, will tell you there's always something to worry about. There's always something to worry about. In fact, most would agree with the uh, esteemed philosopher, the the notorious B.I.G., who said, more money, more problems, right? The question that the man asks in Jesus' story, what shall I do, is a question full of worry. And here's how he decides to answer it. In verse 18, then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. He says, here's what I'll do. And he says it with the confidence of a man who has a plan, a man who has had some success before and who is clear about his objectives in life. His answer to the abundance he had experienced was, I need to make room for more. The storage barns that he had, the ones that he used to look at that were so big in the past, now didn't really seem big at all. The barns that had helped him get to where he he was were now just holding him back, he thought. And he had a plan. He's gonna build bigger barns. And then he would sit back and he would eat and drink and be merry and enjoy his life. In fact, that was a popular Greek philosophy of the day. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And it's the belief that there's nothing more than there is here. There's nothing more than this here. After you die, it's just blackness. It's just over. There's nothing after that. It's a philosophy that doesn't believe in anything after our lives. It doesn't believe that you have a soul. It doesn't believe that you're anything more than a mammal here on earth. Paul talks about this. In fact, he says, hey, if none of this is true, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then those of us who are following Jesus and giving our lives away to other people are to be most pitied. We should do like the Romans do, he said. If none of this is really true, we should eat and drink and be merry because it is true, tomorrow we die. But he knew that wasn't true. He knew this philosophy was empty. And truthfully, most of us do too. The attitude that it's all up to me. Everything is what I make of it. I'm the only one who matters. There's nothing beyond my own success or failure. Um, that, that's the life approach of an atheist. Someone who believes that God does not exist. And since he does not exist, therefore I'm the ultimate source of authority in my own life. Now, Most of you don't believe that or you wouldn't be listening to this, but let me just say, the bigger danger for us is to become a practical atheist. In other words, meaning, hey, I may not believe that. I, I may not believe in the philosophy behind eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, but I live like I do. I may not really believe God doesn't exist, but if I live like I believe that, that makes me a practical atheist. This has uh, nothing to do, by the way, with how successful you are or not. It's about whether you believe you have a soul or not and what that means for your life. Here's what happened. God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be. 
with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And in one night, all of his plans, all of his accomplishments lay in ruins. He planned for everything. Well, everything except the most important thing. He forgot to plan for his death. He couldn't control that. That wasn't his fault. What was his fault? Not taking his death into account. And for that, God saves his most pointed word. He calls him a fool, a fool. Someone who knows the right thing to do and does the opposite. Someone who willfully looks the other way. Someone who maybe even thinks he can, he can cheat death somehow, like sometimes teenagers do who think they'll live forever. They never think about what might happen. He didn't plan for the one thing that was the only real sure thing, the one day he was going to die. He failed to answer the question, what will you do when it all goes away? Because somehow, someday, and who knows when, it's all going to go away. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, Jesus says, but is not rich toward God. Now, Jesus' critique is not about how much you have or how much you make. It's, it's about letting it blind you to reality, that the thing demanded from him wasn't his money. It wasn't his big barns. It was his life. It was his very soul, the thing that he had neglected the most. He failed to plan for his own eternity. Now contrast that story and the story about Howard Hughes with this story. There was another man in the 20th century who was famous for totally different reasons. This, this man grew up with virtually unlimited options. Uh, he could have pointed his life in any direction and he could have made it a success. And instead of pursuing wealth, instead of pursuing a comfortable career like his friends did, Jim Elliott prepared his entire life to bring the message of Christ to a tribe who'd never been contacted by anyone from the outside. And so in 1955, Jim and four missionaries made first contact with the, the Alca tribe in Ecuador. They radioed back that things were going great, but that was the last anyone heard from them. They were killed not long after that by members of that very tribe. And by most standards, this was a total failure, especially if the story stops right there. But it didn't. His wife, Elizabeth, and others uh, visited the tribe and they began living among them. They established a church there and eventually many of the tribe members came to know Christ and they had their eternities altered forever, all because one man was obedient to God. A group of people uh, spurned the trappings of wealth and they pursued something much more noble, much more lofty. And so God used this awful thing to do something amazing. Someone who could have stored up earthly treasure decided that those weren't the deposits that he wanted to make. He wanted to make an eternal impact with his life. And the difference between Hughes and the man in Jesus' story and, and Jim Elliot 
is night and day. The famous quote by Eliot is this, he's no fool who would give the thing he cannot keep to find what he can never lose. The trap of success is a subtle one, it's a serious one. It can make you blind to the most important things in life. It can happen if you have little, it can happen if you have a lot. None of this means that you're supposed to become a missionary to South America necessarily. It doesn't mean that, that you're not supposed to make as much as you can. In fact, John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, he said this, he said, you should earn as much as you can, you should save as much as you can, and you should give as much as you can. No, it's about answering this question. What will you do when it all goes away? So let me give you a few ways to combat the success trap. One is this, regularly serve other people. When you commit to serving others, even, uh, maybe even especially in ways that seem menial, that seem belief you, it gives you the perspective that you need. It helps you avoid the trappings of your own success. Second is this, practice sacrificial generosity. This will be hard, but all of us, whatever you have, whatever you have, need to practice the discipline of regularly giving stuff away, money and things. This helps us avoid being owned by the things that we own. Third, and I almost hesitate to say this one because it sounds so like a Sunday school answer, but it's simply true. Make worship a priority. Why, why do I add that one in? Because worship is the act of lifting your eyes off of yourself and onto God himself, recognizing that he is the one who has given you every single good thing in your life. And if we're gonna survive success and move to significance, we'll discover through worship and giving our hearts back to God that the only true significance is found in the significance of what he did on the cross and the work he continues in and through us. What will you do when it all goes away? Our hope, and I believe his hope, is that we will be able to say at the end that we joyfully gave away all, knowing that we are giving the things we cannot keep to find what we can never lose. Let's pray. God, you have given us everything. We just wanna acknowledge that to you right now. Every good gift is from your hand. We're just the manager of it for a while. Help us manage whatever you've given us, whether it's financial, whether it's our families, whether it's relationships, whether it's just our place that we find ourselves in this world. Help us to manage it well and honor you with it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening. You can find out more about Love Lake Norman at lovelkn.org. If you live in our area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday. If you're not near our church, we want to encourage you to find a life-giving church to be a part of where you live. That will be a key next step on your spiritual journey. 
Please take a minute, subscribe to this podcast, and keep up to date with our weekly messages. And thanks again for joining the Love Lake Norman podcast.